what about the sincere Jew? This is a question that gets asked by Larry King to every Christian who comes on his show. He says, what about a Jewish person who's a sincere Jew? You know, what, what happens to them? And then the pastor either is open and responsive or they backpedal or whatever they respond. Um, but what about the sincere Jew? Um, do, do, they, do they stand before God righteous because they're genuine and they have the law and they're trying? Um, or do they stand condemned? What's the situation? Uh, now, here we are in Romans chapter 2. We're going verse by verse. We're going to pick up in verse 17. And the reason why I, I prompt it like this with what, what about the sincere Jew is because Paul, he often does this in his, in his letters where he anticipates objections. He like makes a case for something and he anticipates how you would object to his case, the challenge you would bring to him. And then he deals with that challenge. So that's what he's done. In Romans 2 verse 17, he anticipates the challenge. Yeah, Paul, a lot of people out there are sinners. They know there's a God, but they reject him. They, they live rebellious, sinful lives. They live like they're atheists. But, but not me. I'm a Jew. I know the truth. I've got the law. Why do I need this Jesus if I have the Torah and I've got Moses' commands? And I, I've got, I, I'm not like the heathen. And so now he kind of turns his focus to that person in verse 17. Um, so the objection, and this, this applies to us too. Anybody who thinks, but I'm a good person. I'm not like the heathens. I'm a good person. That's really what this passage is for. So verse 17 here, it says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. So he's now complimenting the Jew. He's, he's talking to the Jew about what they see themselves as, how they view themselves. So these are like their words out of his mouth, the way that the, the Jew typically would have seen himself. And many of these things are true, but there's a slight misunderstanding implied in the way he characterizes them. So they rest in the law, for instance. They rest on the law. Um, yet as Paul goes on, and he'll continue, you'll realize you don't rest on the law. Like the law is a works-based thing. There is no rest on the law. There's always more labor and, and works of righteousness to try to do to achieve ultimate goodness. There's no rest on the law. The law does not offer you rest. Jesus offers you rest. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Nowhere in the law is it finished. Right? You're, you're not done until you've lived a perfect life 100% righteously. And so only in Christ is there real rest. He says they make their boast in God so that they know the real God, the true God. I know about the real God and I boast in him and, and they know his will. They're aware of God's will. They approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. So they know right from wrong much better than their Gentile or pagan counterparts. The moral compass of the, of the Jew who knows the Torah is going to be much more in line with truth than the moral compass of the Gentile. Because the law, the word of God, has corrected and guided and directed that moral compass. So they're like, yeah, we get it. We get the truth. And then he goes on. Verse 19, not only do they get it, but they teach it to others. And you are confident, and are, excuse me, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So the first uh, verses 17 and 18 are dealing with the things they would think about themselves. I'm enlightened. And then verse 19 and 20, and I enlighten others. 
I am a teacher of these truths. I am the Jew. I may go into the pagan lands and bring them the knowledge of the true God of Israel. This isn't, isn't even necessarily wrong in and of itself. But there's a danger in teaching. Have you noticed this? There's a great danger in teaching. Teaching can puff us up. Now, like knowledge puffs up. And what do teachers do? What do I do? I study. I gain knowledge. And then I come to dispense my knowledge. And it can become very an arrogant kind of like, I feel like I know everything about everything. As a teacher, you're used to being right. Or at least looking like you're right. And it can be common to, to where, you know, as a teacher, I should always be able to be corrected by others. Have someone come and challenge my interpretation of a passage or my view of something. And listen to them eagerly because I want to be corrected. Because I crave being right as opposed to looking right. But you can get used to being right. You can become your own echo chamber. It's as though when the words come out of my mouth, they become even more true than before I said them. You, know? <laughs> like, you can become sort of like your own echo chamber. Um, that's a danger. Um, your students, if you're a teacher, they, um, they start to think that what you said is pretty much the final word on God because you said it. This can be dangerous. I'm no longer quoting scripture. I'm just quoting some, some Christian teacher. Well, so-and-so says, as if that's the final word. And this is actually what Jesus kind of corrected them on. You know, they would be like, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so says this. And then Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you heard it was said this. But I tell you. And he just goes right back to the scriptures and gives the clear teaching of what it means. Perhaps we, we do this in other areas. We, we say, oh, I'm, I'm, a great, I'm a great teacher, but, but maybe it's not religious. Maybe it's science. I'm, I, am, I am a scientist, and I've studied, you know, the... the the reproductive capacities of groundworms in detail. So I must therefore know everything about everything. And this is what you find out with, with scientists that typically are highly specialized individuals, but they often will talk like they know everything about everything. We should be careful that we don't know everything about everything. It should be not uncommon for me to say, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not really sure what to do with that. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not aware of those things. But these these issues that Paul's going to point out in the, in the Jewish people is that they started feeling like they knew everything about everything, which is not a Jewish trait, but a human trait. <laughs> when you think you know something, eventually teachers are quoting teachers who are quoting teachers who are quoting teachers, and it just becomes like a school of thought um, that's unfortunate. If you're a teacher, you can assume you know too much. I've seen this symptom in teachers, and I'll just put it out there for all of us to consider to watch out for ourselves. I study a lot. I really think and I really... So this makes me feel like I can casually hear 3% of the information about some subject and I already know the other 97% of it just by guessing because it's me. You know, I, I have that wisdom and discernment. Yet real wisdom and discernment is trusting what Proverbs says when it says, a fool answers a matter before he hears it. Right? It's a folly and a shame to him. And you know, when you answer it before you've really heard the whole story... You end up looking like a fool because you didn't know what you're talking about. Um, so we can assume we know too much. And then there's the real danger that I think that Paul's hearers fell into, which is you can miss the point of the things that you do know. You can actually know stuff without applying it. You can know it without applying it. It's like I could be here, I, I'm an alarm expert. And I know that the particular beeping that the alarm is making right now actually means that you know, armed robbers have come in the front door and there's also a carbon monoxide leak directly to my right. 
And I could be like, hey guys, armed robbers are that way, carbon monoxide that way, I'm pretty good, right? And then I choke and die and get shot. Because I didn't realize I was supposed to run for my life. See, I could, I could be the expert in things, but not actually apply the knowledge I have. And that's what he's going to say to the, to the Jew they've done. So you think you know all this stuff, but verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Oh, you know the word of God and you know all this stuff and you're, you're ready to, to tell others how they should live their lives and how they should fix their marriage and how they can do their business and how and how and how. And you're, you're Monday night quarterbacking, right? It's like the classic table of old dudes that get together early on a Saturday morning and they have breakfast and fix the world's problems, verbally speaking. You know, they, just, they talk about how everybody, if they just did what these old guys said they should do, the world would be perfect. Um, and he goes, yeah, but do you apply it to yourself? Do you apply it to yourself? Jesus actually used the same sort of reasoning that Paul's using when he encountered the Pharisees. He says to John, in John, excuse me, um, to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he says in John 3.10, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So he tells them, you're supposed to be the light, you're supposed to be the wise, you're supposed to know, but you don't know this. This is basic and you don't know this, that you have to be born again. You haven't realized the sinful nature of man. Have you not read the Old Testament? Like, don't you know? In Matthew twenty two twenty nine, Jesus says this to the, uh, to the Sadducees, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, what's crazy is the Sadducees probably knew the Old Testament better than any of us in the room. And they could quote it, and they had memorized huge portions of it, but they didn't get it. So they were teachers without having been students, really, of the word. And the world is full of this. We have plenty of pastors and pulpits who don't understand the, te- the real teaching of scripture that's there. So they kind of come up with something. I got to have something to say, you know. And then they find something to say and then unfortunately um, convince themselves that they've expounded on the word when they've kind of missed the most obvious statements of scripture. So in other words, the Jews had a school of thought when it came to the word of God. And the school of thought they had was wrong. Their school of thought they had was wrong. What, what I mean is... There's a, there's a time when in the past people thought things that we nowadays go, that was really dumb. Why did they believe that? Right? You can think of easy examples in your head. I'll give you a couple. People used to think cigarettes were good for you. They were healthy. They cure cancer. This was one of the claims that cigarettes cure cancer, that smoking this thing will cure your cancer. Never heard that before. <laughs> good luck with that. People really thought this. In fact, one of the advertisements for camel cigarettes was to, t- to check camel cigarettes in your T-zone. And for a month, t- the taste of camel cigarettes, your T-zone right here, your mouth and throat. So does it taste good? And then your throat, does it make your throat feel smooth and, and, and good? Because it's good for throat health. Cigarettes, obviously, this is true. Now you laugh and you're like, how did you possibly think this was true? It was just the accepted school of thought that was going on. Everybody knows. But they missed the point. That first time you took a cigarette and you inhaled it and you hacked and coughed and threw up, that was supposed to teach you something. (laughs) This is your body telling you, no, don't do it. This is not a good idea. I don't like this. It's not healthy. There was a belief in something called spontaneous regeneration. Excuse me. Spontaneous generation, not regeneration. That would be like an X-Men thing. Um, (laughs) Spontaneous generation is the idea that if I take like say rotten meat and I put it in an open container maggots will simply spontaneously come to life inside the open container of rotten meat. They thought this about other types of insects and little critters that they would just, life from non-life. It's something called abiogenesis. 
And then after a while, they realized, in fact, Pasteur really helped prove this when he when he would he could he could sanitize something and then put it in a container and realize nothing's ever going to grow because we have a rule in science called biogenesis which means life only comes from life you know you don't get life from non-living material although some try to fight this <laughs> but yet yet there are people who used to think in that uh, about that and no they're very wrong they also used to think that radiation was nothing to worry about did you know that these people used to really believe this radiation was no big deal uh, Mary Curie one of the um, uh, one of the pioneers in looking at mercury and things like that. She thought radiation was fine. She died from radiation poisoning. She learned a lot about it, but some of it she learned the hard way, and she thought it was fine. And she was like, well, you shouldn't be afraid of it. Nothing wrong with radiation. But some of her books, because she would just keep radioactive material all over the place, some of her books are so radioactive they have to keep them in lead-lined boxes. You can't even like thumb through her book because you can get radiation poisoning from it. One of the chief examples of this is the Radiation Girls. Back in the earlier 1900s, um, we had a group of uh, Radiation Girls. They, what they would do is they would put radioactive paint on watches so that these watches would glow in the dark. But they would also take the same glow-in-the-dark radioactive paint and they'd paint their teeth with it, their fingernails with it, and just for fun. And, um, and of course, they suffered greatly because of this. But everybody said that it was safe. Everybody said there was nothing wrong with it, that it was a totally safe thing to do. Mankind thinks we've always been fools in the past, but we never stop to think we might be fools today. <laughs> like, oh yeah, everybody back then was so dumb, but not us today. Like, have you not <laughs> applied? Do you not teach yourself? There are things we think today that are just totally stupid, that are common, worldwide accepted, generally accepted beliefs that are just not wise and not true. And they should seem obviously wrong to anybody who's willing to use common sense. But we often ignore common sense because we have a lot of people that agree with us. A lot of people agree with me, so I don't need common sense because I got all these people nodding their heads with me. And this is a danger, especially when it comes to religious issues. And so the Jews, they had the Old Testament, they had the condemnation that Scripture provides us, but they kind of ignored it because they had a school of thought that sort of spun these things and made it seem okay. Jesus said to the Pharisees, remember this? He says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So you think you know what you're seeing, but you're not really seeing what you think you're seeing. But because you think you see it, you'll never let me show it to you. So you're stuck. The thing is, you think you know, and that's why you won't know. If you'll not know for a minute, then I can teach you. That, that's kind of what he's saying to them. So it means, basically, as Christians, we need to apply this lesson that Paul's teaching them is, we have to rely more on the text than we do on the teachers. We have to rely more on the text than we do on the teachers. I cannot become the authority of, well, but Pastor Mike interprets it this way, so it must be true. No, it's got to be the text. If I can't justify my interpretation in the text, then you shouldn't be taking it. Now, that takes work, but it's the best way I can think to safeguard you from the error of other teachers as well as my own potential problems I might have that I'm not even aware of. Is that we've got to, we've got to trust the text over our teachers. <clears throat> it takes courage to be able to hear a teacher who you respect say the Bible means such and such and then you read the passage and you go, I think he got it wrong. It takes courage to, to, to be like, 
Maybe he just got it wrong. <laughs> Maybe he did get it wrong. It takes some courage. But you should because if you're going to elevate one over the other, it's always the text. It's always got to be the text. <clears throat> so here's the question then. Based on all that, verses 17 through 21, what did the Jews actually miss in the law? That's what he's going to get to. He's like, you think you know all this stuff, but you missed the point. What did they miss in the law? Here at the end of verse uh, 21, it says, You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? So why these things? Uh, Paul picks out like three specific issues that he grabs kind of out of, not just off the top of his head, but for specific reasons, right? He talks about theft, adultery, and idolatry. Now it's interesting because theft is something that I think every human on earth has probably done. It's probably stolen. It seems to come natural to us when we're kids. We have family where the, a, a kid from our family will come over to the house and, and when they leave, we're like, where's our such and such? I don't know, but so-and-so was playing with it right before they left, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, you know, we have, we've had a, one of our family members that take stuff and put it in his little pocket. And then we're like, sorry, you can't have that. And he goes, I was just going to borrow it, you know, <laughs> borrow it forever. You know? That's, it's just, it seems natural. You know, I want, I take, I want, I take, if I can get away with it, I take. And so most of us have got theft in our past, our past. And he says, you know, you can't steal, right? But you have. Then he mentions adultery. You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, Jesus, he taught on this particular subject. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he expands this issue of, of lust to be a, in itself a sin. Now, this is not so much him expanding as him pointing out the fact that the 10th pesky commandment is do not covet. It's a commandment against thought. Don't covet. Don't have that thought. Don't have that desire in your heart. Don't harbor that thing. Yet all of us have failed here. So he's holding up the law to the Jewish person saying, you know the law, but have you really looked at it? You don't do this. You're not really faithful in these areas. You're not really as holy as you'd like to think you are. And then he hits this last one that might seem off, but let me explain. It says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, of course, I don't think here we should imagine that there were Jewish people like going into the temple of, you know, whatever, the temple of Ares and like robbing it. I don't think that that's what was happening back then. I think what's happening here is he says, you abhor idols, but you rob temples. Well, to the Jew, what, what temple am I robbing? Well, this is, this, is, this is the question they asked in Malachi. In Malachi, they say to God, like, we've robbed you. How have we stolen from you, God? In Malachi 3.8, he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. That God looks to the Jewish people. They have the law. The Gentiles don't have the law. You can't accuse them of not tithing and offering when they were not told to do so. But to the Jew who's received the law, he says to them, You didn't tithe and offer the way you were, you were commanded to. So in that, you stole from me. So I think that Paul is doing this as he's drawing into the Jewish mind who knows the scriptures. He's saying, you abhor idols, but you've made money, your idol, by not giving to God like you should have. And that just like lying and stealing, you know, lust, these are sort of universal things. It seemed probably pretty common. He would have hit a lot of Jewish people by saying, Did you, have you really always offered what you should? No. Well, then you stole from God and made money your idol. You put money over God. 
So this is a pretty big deal. Paul traps them with idolatry, adultery, theft, and ultimately with money as an idol. Uh, money really itself is not the root of all evil, but love of money, the root of all kinds of evil, that's for sure. And it's in, a, in and of itself, it is a type of idolatry. Jesus talks about this as the love of not just money, but mammon. He goes, you can't serve God in mammon. And he uses a, an, an idol's name for money itself to show us there's an idolatry issue here. Money represents all the stuff I can buy with the money. It's not just the money. It's, it's all my prosperity. It's all the things I want or hope to have or the things I'm scared of and, and maybe don't want to trust God on. And so I want money to, to, to be my blanket of security or whatever. And it can actually become an idol. So I think the point that Paul is making here, he says, you say you're a Jew, you've got all this wisdom, you're a teacher to others, but have you taught yourself? And then he gives them the thing they should have taught themselves, that you should be obeying a law which you are not obeying. Oh yes, you could point to laws you have obeyed, but the problem is you can also point to laws you haven't obeyed. And that's kind of how the law works. It's not like if you break everything, you're in trouble. <laughs> you should break one law, now you're a lawbreaker. Now you're in trouble. So God's law shows the righteous requirement, which is good. The problem is it shows us that we all fall short. Jesus did this on the Sermon on the Mount. He just exposes how high the requirement of the law is. And then he lives it out and fulfills it. The heart of prayer, the giving issues, adultery, all that kind of stuff. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's awakening the conscience of the Jewish person. So they can see that they're a sinner in need of a savior. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He's like holding up the mirror of God's word to say, okay, you've looked at the word, but have you looked at yourself in the reflection of this? And it shows you that you've, you've fallen short. So James 1.23, speaking of that mirror, it says, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. But then he doesn't do the word. So he goes away and forgets what he looks like. That's the analogy here of the Jew who, who goes, I know I could quote it all verbatim. Yeah, but, but have you done it? Have you obeyed it? That's what matters. Not what you know, but what you do. Is it information or is it transformation? Like which, which one do you have going on? Do you break it? That's the heart of it. You know, there's, there's 613 commands. Did you do them all as the Jewish person? And the answer, of course, is no. Um, no, not even close. Now, some schools of thought seek to spin this to be better. I know uh, Dennis Prager, who I actually have a lot of respect for that man, but he did put out a series of videos, one of which where he, um, some of them, where he deals with the Ten Commandments one at a time. And when he got to the Tenth Commandment, as he's, he's explaining the Ten Commandments, he then goes on to say, the Tenth Commandment is a commandment against coveting. Coveting is, is, a, is a thought thing. God, it's actual commandment against thought, against a certain kind of thought. And then he goes on to explain why because coveting leads to breaking all the other commands. You know, I don't steal what my neighbor has unless I've coveted. I don't commit adultery unless I've coveted. But then he says, covet, though, and this is where he gets off. He says, covet, the word covet means to seek to own. And he turns a thought into an action so that he can feel as though he hasn't broken this commandment. You see, and no, in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean to seek to own. I don't know where he gets this from. Now, he knows Hebrew better than me, which means he should know better. <laughs> That's not what it means. Um, it just means to covet. It, it is a thought thing, of which he admits in the first part of his video. But in the second part, he shifts it and says, oh, no, no. It means to seek to own, which is now, like I said, that's an action. So as long as, so in other words, the 10th commandment doesn't even need to exist because just don't, don't steal and don't lie and don't commit adultery. Just don't do those things. But no, but see this, what's happening here is I can't handle that commandment, man. I feel like I'm doing good, but that commandment's too strict. I can't do it. We all fall short of that. 
And instead of saying, yep, we need grace, we need Jesus. Instead, it's like, nah, let's spin it so I can feel like I'm a good person. That's the school of thought Jesus was dealing with. That's the school of thought Paul is dealing with. And this is why Jesus says in John 5, 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. He tells the Jewish people, Moses is going to stand accusing you, not just his person, but the law itself from Moses is going to accuse you. This is a very unpleasant reality. To the sincere Jew, scripture says, you may be sincere, but you are not sinless. You could be a sincere Jew, a sincere Hindu, a sincere atheist. You could be a sincere anything, but you're still a sinner and you know it. And there's a problem there. Sometimes the Bible is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. And that's definitely the impact we get here. Um, So let's keep reading. Verse 24. He goes on. This is one of those passages, this verse right here, that's that's sort of shared a lot, but um, read through, but kind of ignored. Like we missed the point of why it's in here. It says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So Paul says, okay, you know, do you teach yourself? Okay, here's some commandments. You've all failed and you know it. Learn the lesson. You're a sinner who needs a savior, even though you're sincere. Um, Then he goes on and says, okay, now that I've pointed your personal guilt, I want to move from personal to universal and show that the Old Testament has been saying all along that the Jews fall short, just like the Gentiles. The only difference between Jew and Gentile is the Jews were chosen. But they were just a bunch of basically Gentiles who were chosen. And then God gave them promises, but they still fell short. This is one of those verses we can overlook. Let's look at it. Maybe someone could say like, look, I'm not the best example. But still, the Old Testament law means like, do this and you'll live. And the answer is yes, but you didn't do this. And that's what the Old Testament reveals. When it says the name of God's blasphemed among the Gentiles, it's quoting a couple different verses. Let's look at them. 2 Samuel 12, 14, it says, However, because this, by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who's born to you shall surely die. Anybody know who that's talking to? That's King David. King David is one of the hero of heroes in the scripture. And Paul specifically quotes out one of the best Jews. I mean, I have great admiration for David. One of the greatest. But he's pointed out as one of the chief examples of a, of a godly man, yet who has failed and gave occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. If even the greatest Jews had these failings, then what, if I was Jew, what, what, what sort of comfort do I have that I'm going to earn my way to heaven with my, with my righteousness, with my own goodness, which is modern day Judaism, is I will earn my way to heaven with my goodness. Nobody does this. The other one is Isaiah 52, verse 5. It says, Now therefore... What have I here, says the Lord, that my people who are taken away for nothing, those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. So the the people of God, the Jews, widely speaking, were apostatized at that time in history, and they're getting carried away. And then the people who are uh, pagans, they're mocking God, the God of Israel, because look at his people. They rebelled against him, and now they're being judged. And so they've given occasion of the Lord to blaspheme. Now, I, I think that we can apply this to Christians as well. Do I live the life before Christ that gives occasion for others to mock my Christianity? Well, they'll mock you, that's for sure. But do they have reason? I don't want to give reason. You know, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. But the point here that Paul is making is that throughout the Old Testament, the verdict is 
Here's the standard and you fail. Here's the standard and you fail. Look at, let's survey in our minds the scriptures. We have Adam and Eve. Did they succeed or fail? Right? They, they ate of the tree. They failed. In Mormon theology, this is seen as a good thing, but in, in the Bible, it's not. Okay? <laughs> they fail. Mankind in Noah's time. Epic fail. The thought of his heart continually evil all the time. So finally, God calls a Jewish people and he calls them to himself. And at Mount Sinai, they make a golden calf. And they start worshiping this. And they go, oh, this golden calf, that's Yahweh who, who brought us out of Egypt. And they start worshiping. And so then the, the commandments they're given and no sooner are they given than they are broken. They broke the commands. Then we have the people in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they're like, all, oh man, this is really scary and messed up. Let's kill this guy and get out of here. Let's go back to Egypt. So the people of Israel, they reject God. You get to the book of Joshua, and Joshua lives with them. He sees their rebellion, their constant attitudes of rebellion, which is not uniquely Jewish. This is just human. That's the point. This is human. And the Jews are not an exception to this. In Joshua 24, let's, let's, let's uh, look at what he says to them. But Joshua said to the people, his like farewell address, not the most encouraging words. He says, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he's done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Yet as you read on, you get to the book of Judges. And those same people, that same people group, they are rebelling against God over and over. Seven times they fall away. Seven times it says they do whatever's right in their own eyes and then God sends judgment and then he sends them a deliverer and then they do what's right and they get judged. And, they, and I remember reading, reading these books and being like, man, I'm frustrated with, these, with these, these people of God that they fail so much. I remember as a teen reading it going like, man, just stay loyal to God already. And then it hit me. That's me. Like I'm the same way. That's the thing. The Jews, if you're not Jewish, the Jews are acting the same way you would if you had been called. We, we fail. And the Jewish person going, look at the Old Testament. It's constant failure of humans and faithfulness and grace from God. You need God's grace. No matter how sincere you are, you still fail. Jesus said to this to them as well. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here's his, his nickname for Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. They don't have a, a, a faithful accounting and a faithful life before God, but a rebellious one. Stephen in Acts 7.52, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Humanity fails. We all fail. Jewish, Gentile alike, everybody fails. We need grace. And that's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are really trying to drive in, is the uncomfortable truth that should be really obvious, that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. And there's no exception to the sincere Jew or the sincere anybody for that matter. It's not sincerity that earns righteousness. It's holiness. You know, it's perfect life. That's what it does. I mean, all you have to do is read through the prophets. You know, can you think of any of the prophets who came talking about just, just purely good news? Hey, Israel, you're amazing. God's going to bless you because you are perfect in every way. Yeah those, yeah, those were false prophets in Jeremiah, right? And Jeremiah's like, 
you guys is not going to be good. It's going to be ugly, you know. And this is and this is true for the prophets who went to the Gentiles as well. This is not some sort of attack on on Jewish people. The point is, Jew Gentile. The difference is the Jews had the law, the Gentiles didn't. But the people are people. They weren't born again. They weren't regenerated. There wasn't an internal transformation. That's why there was a new covenant promise where God would give them a new heart, because. You in your flesh, even with the God's perfect law, you will not serve him properly. You can't do it. It's not going to happen. You need to be born again. That's why he tells Nicodemus, don't you get it? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? You got to be born again, man. You need to start fresh. So let's read on. He then says in verse 25, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It'll be like he is circumcised, even though physically he's not. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now this is directed specifically towards Jewish people, but it's a universal principles that we really, really deeply need. This is a common thing. I, can, I have a conscience that's aware that I've sinned before God, and when I really dwell on that, it freaks me out if I'm apart from Christ. So what I can do is I can kill my conscience by finding one thing I did that's really good. Well, I got circumcised. I'm circumcised, so then I'm part of the whole thing and I'm okay. Oh yeah, well, I go to church. I may not be the strongest Christian, but I, but I go to church. But I, hey, I still read my Bible. Well, I remember I led that one guy to the Lord that one time, so I must be okay. And we find like one thing to sort of hook ourselves onto that justifies us in our minds. But that's not the way justification works. I'm either good on my own or I'm no good and Jesus saves me. And there's no really anywhere in between. And I can't become good by doing one good thing. Like I know, judge, I, I may have stolen all that money from all those people. But, but I always pay taxes and declare it. So it's okay. I, like I find one thing I do and that justifies the things I don't do. In your case, it might be your baptism. Perhaps, well, I got baptized though. Church attendance, like I said, um, maybe you went forward. Maybe somebody went forward at a harvest crusade or, or prayed a prayer and then they went off and they lived exactly the same non-believing life for 20, 30 years. But they really, but I went forward that one time. And I would say, read the book of James, dude. You're probably not saved. That's just the scriptures. I mean, it's, you're probably not I mean, you, maybe you are, but I would have no confidence in that salvation because you claim something happened 20 years ago. You, you need to see a living walk with Christ in a person's life before you can have some sense of assurance. So it kills the conscience. And in the case of the Jewish person, it was circumcision. Circumcision was hugely important. And for good reason, it's the sign of the covenant. If you were a non-Jew and you became a Jewish person and you're a man, you'd have to become circumcised as like a sign that you're, you're coming under the covenant of, of, uh, of circumcision. Galatians 5.3, though, it talks about the circumcision isn't by itself, right? It says this, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. It's the sign of the covenant, but the covenant's the whole thing. You know, it's like it's the whole law. You got to keep it all. You got to keep it all. 
To put it this way, if you want works, then you get all works. You want to be saved by works? You're saved purely by works. You want grace? It's purely grace. Romans is pushing you into a corner. Are you going to be righteous on your own, in which case you fail, or are you going to turn to Jesus Christ for the great freedom and grace and forgiveness that there is in him? These are the only two options. It doesn't allow some wishy-washy mix of grace and works, which we find in most religious organizations. I think we have a, a, a way to put this that comes from the book of James. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. This is James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is easy. It's you broke the law. The law is like this 10-link chain. And you might be hanging over the precipice of doom, and you're hanging by this 10-link chain. And then you think, well, I only broke one link, so I'm probably okay, right? No, you're doomed, man. You broke one, you broke the chain. It's busted. You're going down. And that's what righteousness before God would be, is every single link's got to be in place. Man, I, I walked in perfect righteousness. Or you let Jesus climb the chain and then just pull you up, <laughs> which is what grace is. So I, I break one lie, I've broken them all. And that's, that's what he's trying to drive into them. Eventually, he'll come to Romans 7, 14. And I'll just read that to you. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. So he's not saying anything against the law of God. He's just saying, look, you're, you're carnal, I'm carnal. We're all carnal. This isn't an excuse. It's actually a diagnosis. It's like, it's like if, if, if a doctor came to humanity, he could say, guys, I have, I have bad news for you. You're going to die. And he'd be right. It's a universal problem that most of us just ignore most of the time. And in the same sense, we have sin and guilt before God that we often ignore. So now, um, we can learn something from all this. All this labor that Paul's going through to show them from the Old Testament to, to their own conscience, to the law itself, to the evaluation of the Old Testament of the Jewish people having been consistently backslidden and falling and all that. The point is, here, it can take serious work to convince somebody that they're a sinner. It can really, I mean, he is laboring at this. You notice this for the, for the Gentile, he just feels like he has to tell him, you know it, you've got your conscience, like you know you're sinners. But for the religious Jew, it's like he has to work really hard to convince them that they're sinners. This is why it's an offense to the Jew. An offense, I should say, to anybody who's religious and feels like they're, no, but I'm, a, but I'm not like the pagans, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And the scripture is trying to say, no, you're, you're not. You just know what good is, but you don't actually do it. You're not consistent in being good. Especially people who say, well, I go to church. I was baptized. I went forward. I've talked to guys who have churches in the Bible Belt, you know, in, in, the, in the more religious areas of America. Certainly California would not be one of those. Um, and how they really struggle with trying to get people to even, even allow the thought to enter their mind. Am I saved? Like it can't even come into the brain. It would never, it doesn't matter. I could be, I'm an abusive dad. I, I'm cruel to my family. I'm selfish. I lie. I cheat. I steal. But I still have Philippians memorized, you know, and I got baptized and I went forward. I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm good. It won't occur to them 
that that they need Jesus completely desperately. I've heard people say, well, I was born a Christian. And that just freaks me out, man. You were born a Christian? That doesn't happen. You have to be born again. (laughs) Your first birth is in the natural. It's carnal. You need to be born again. So it can take serious work to convince people that they're sinners. But if you love them, and if you want to drive them to Christ, you may have to start at Romans 1 instead of Romans 8. You may have to start with Romans 1, 2, and 3 instead of Romans 8. And you have to help people see it. And sometimes it takes more work. And if you're not being unloving, you're not doing it to be cruel. You're just asking, hey, you know you're religious. You know what's right and wrong. All right. But have you taught yourself? Have you applied it to yourself? Have you taken these high moral values and looked at your own life through that lens to see that you need grace, you need Jesus, just as bad as anybody else? Now, what we're not hearing in all this, we're not hearing that the Jew has to be better. We're not hearing, oh, Jewish person, you're just not religious enough. You're not good enough. You you work harder and you'll make it. The whole point of all this is Gentile Jew. He's kind of picking a one at a time and he's showing him, you all fall short. You need God's grace. That's where he goes in chapter three. And, um, and so that's where we're going to, going to start. We'll pick up next week, actually there where we left off here at the end of two, moving into three. Um, And the question next week that Paul sort of anticipates is this really interesting question. It's a philosophical thing. He's it's this, is God unjust to inflict wrath. So now that you've condemned all of humanity, you're saying everybody's fallen short, everybody's a sinner and they need grace. But then is it really right for God to judge them if they're all sinners like that? And so he actually brings this up in the passage and we'll get a we'll get a wrestle with that and talk about it a little bit. So I'm I'm excited about it. But let's uh let's pray and I'll ask any or answer any questions you guys have. I might ask someone else to answer them if I can't think of anything to say. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your the, the goodness of God in Christ that that sometimes uh, we have to sort of be shown the x-ray to believe that we have a broken bone. We have to be shown the law to be, to see that we're sinners. But this is a grace to us and it's a loving thing to do because it brings us to our knees so we might receive forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that we be a humble people, that we be fully aware of the fact that we, apart from Christ, are wretched. We're wretched. I mean, who do we think we are? Help us to stay humble and to give all the glory and praise to Christ. Give all the honor and appreciation to Jesus, our Savior, who who lived the perfect life and gave us his righteousness, imputed our sin to him and his righteousness to us. We pray that we be walking in gratitude, Lord, but that also at the same time, the high moral code of scripture, the high moral calling of God, that that would be in our hearts and minds, that throughout this week we would be those who not only look at the world and we see where the world is failing or falling apart or making bad decisions, but we would apply the high calling of Christ into our own lives. May we not be those who teach others without teaching ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave